good morning, everyone, and welcome to City Beautiful Church. Uh, last week, Jenna informed me that she's going to now start counting every time I come to this gathering and say good evening or good night. So there's good morning. So one for the good mornings, zero for the good evenings. Um, you know, it's kind of funny because we can't technically see the sunlight, so it could be literally any time during the day, and that's okay. Uh, we, we, call it, we call it intimacy. We call it contemplative <laughs> when it's dark and there's a Shekinah glory kind of floating in the room. Um, so good morning, uh, everyone. If this is your first time here, my name is Ryan. I'm the pastor here at City Beautiful Church, and this is our second morning gathering. Absolutely phenomenal. Um, so last, last week, you know, we have a, a run-through meeting before, uh, before we begin, and there was literally no one in here when we started that. It's about 20 minutes before 1030. Uh, and I walked, I walked out of that meeting thinking, oh my goodness, if no one is here, this is going to be, the Lord's going to have to do something absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and we had 92 people last week, uh, which is phenomenal, you know, uh, and I think there was about 130 people at the, the evening gathering. So that means there's a lot of people that have kind of made decisions on where they want to land, but it means that we're also bringing in some new people. And that's exactly why we're doing this. Uh, we want this morning gathering to be missional. We want to reach out to our neighborhood, Lake Ivanhoe and the Mills 50 district. We want to let people know that we exist and we're here and we're for them. And we want to be the kind of place um, where folks that maybe are disenfranchised from church or they have never really taken church seriously, um, an opportunity for them to come and to meet God and have a real experience of Jesus and to, to meet his people, his family, which is you. So I just want to encourage all of you, you know, just because we've had one and now we're starting our second morning gathering, it, it by no means is it mission accomplished. We want to continue to, to go out and to talk to friends and family and coworkers and people that we run into in our neighborhood and invite them to come and be part of what God is doing here. Um, and again, the premium there is really, um, you know, if they're, they're folks that don't already have a church to go to, we want to support and love our brothers and sisters that are already doing it. We don't want to scout people from other churches. I'm not interested in that. Uh, but if you know people in your life that are still looking and searching, uh, perhaps this is the place where they meet God. Um, so we're currently uh, starting a series called Form. And last week we talked about this idea of form specifically as taking the shape of Jesus. And our kind of main uh, verse that we're using to center this entire series over the next several months is this from 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul writes, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so last week, I broke down that verse into kind of four essential parts, and we talked about what it really means. What, first of all, what does it mean for us to have unveiled faces? What does it look like for God to be doing this new thing through Jesus that opens us up to relationship with, and intimacy with him? What does it mean for us to be transformed? I think the thing that I really walked away from last week uh, really contemplating is right now in this very moment, every single one of you is being worked on by God. You know, this transformation that occurs when we become more Christ-like, it isn't a contract that we signed at one point in our story and all of a sudden now we look like Jesus and it's all over and done with. But we're in the process right now of being transformed. And sometimes we can see that process happening in our lives, but a lot of times we can't, right? A lot of times it's, it's not until we have a little bit of distance from a very pivotal season in our lives that we can look back and see, oh yes, God was working on me through that time. Uh, but we're being transformed in his image with an ever-increasing glory. And glory just means the manifest presence of God. You say, where is God? Oh, there he is, much like a cloud, a presence <laughs> that happens. But we look, so when we begin to see not only within our own lives, but the lives of the people that we uh, walk alongside this journey with, and we see the transformation in each other's lives, that becomes God's glory. It's the evidence that God is working in us when we contemplate Christ directly, but we also contemplate him uh, among one another. And of course, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, that God alone has the authority to make this transformation happen. Your identity as the image of God, as a son or daughter of God, that's not something that you can earn. Amen? That's not something that you can work really hard or you can go away for a weekend retreat and do a workshop and then you get the token at the end of it and all of a sudden now you're the image of God. 
Um, No, it's something that you open yourself up to, and it's a gift that's given to you from above. And so that's really shaping what this series is going to be about. What is the actual process of spiritual growth like for us to mature, to begin to look more like Jesus day by day? And so as I said last week, you know, sometimes we talk about the things that we believe, uh, but on this series we're talking more about the way in which we believe and how that stimulates us to grow. So tonight, I want to talk about how we, see, I just did it, tonight, which is technically true. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the exact same thing as this morning, okay? But we're also going to be talking about it this morning, about, we're going to be talking about how we grow, Uh, and then I want to look at two ways from the biblical narrative that kind of envision what this journey of growth really looks like. So let's, uh, you pray for me, and I'll pray for you. Um, Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you're here, um, that you're with us. And not only are you with us, Lord, but you're also for us. Even right now, Lord, the spirit within us is is advocating for us. Um, And Jesus is at your right hand doing the very same thing, Lord. And with that uh, kind of support, uh, we're able to come in here with a certain level of freedom, Um, and a permission to be open and to be honest with you uh, and to allow you uh, to work within our lives, to to shift and realign and redeem and restore all these little bits of our personalities and our stories uh, and the gifts that you've given us in this life. So Father, I pray that um, in this moment your spirit would anoint our minds and hearts uh, to receive your truth and that you would push out Uh, any place of fear or hesitation, uh, and that you would bring in a peace that passes all understanding, that we know that when you're with us, we have nothing to fear, um, and and that you'll take us by the hand and walk us into some new places tonight. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever-pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And so I want to begin kind of drawing in something that I mentioned last week as our starting point to talk about growth. Faithfulness to follow God's lead gives forward momentum to our personal growth, okay? What do I mean by this? Last week I was talking about, um, you know, we're in this season as uh, a culture where we're very big on deconstruction, which is this idea that we, we go back and we re-examine all the things that we've been told that we're supposed to believe and all of the, and the practices that come along with that. And there's something good about that and being self-reflective and really scrutinizing. But what that can do is it can make us addicted to skepticism that any time that we're given a, a, a belief or a practice, we're, we're so skilled at disassembling it that nothing really sticks. We become like human Teflon that any time that something's presented to us, it just kind of slides right off of us. And we can um, either unhealthily get rooted in a moment or a time or, or beliefs as a way to be secure that actually prevents us from meeting God, or we can live this kind of skeptical life where nothing sticks and we just kind of wander through life without direction. But I believe that when we're faithful to God, to, in that intimate relationship with God, that we allow him to lead us through times of confidence and through times of fear and doubt, Whatever comes along in life, if we're faithful to follow God's lead in that, that's what stimulates us uh, to personal growth. And I think a lot of the wisdom tradition that we find in Scripture is all about this invitation to grow, to move, to advance, to evolve, even though I'm not sure we're allowed to use that word in church. Um, But wisdom, wisdom removes or establishes obstacles Um, that prompt us to adapt and to grow and to change. And this is one thing that I really love about the wisdom tradition. Now, what we're talking about there within Scripture specifically are uh, the Proverbs, some of the Psalms, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. We find a lot of it in the way that the New Testament writers wrote, a lot in the way that Jesus taught. Um, But it's all about removing obstacles or even sometimes establishing obstacles that kind of force us to grow. So I want to give you an example of this from one of my favorite books in the Bible, Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. I love Ecclesiastes. I think it's the most offensive book in the Bible, unless you talk about Song of Solomon, and that's literally just what they're talking about, you know, women having hair like goats and breasts like young does and pomegranates for cheeks or something. I'm not sure exactly what that one's about. We'll use that for another sermon, but Ecclesiastes is this kind of wisdom that's like wisdom beyond wisdom. Have you ever read Ecclesiastes? And there's something in there that's so offensive 
so counterintuitive to what you've been taught to believe that you know there's got to be something there because well, it's part of our tradition. Why is this here? You know, think about in the beginning of Ecclesiastes where he says, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And what do we hear over and over again in church? Your life has purpose and meaning and value, and then you come across this and you're like, I'm just going to stick to the New Testament. But there's something there. It's this kind of subversive, upside-down form of wisdom that invites us to begin to think in different ways. That when we really push into it, and it, and it, it prompts us to come before the Lord open-handed and say, God, I literally have no idea what this is about. It leads us into a new place where we find that it's not really in conflict with what we believe, but it can actually reinforce it. And so there's this really beautiful line in Ecclesiastes 3 um, that I think sets the tone for what we're talking about. The writer says this, I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. He set eternity in the human heart. Like everything. Everything has, has a meeting point within your heart. And so when, when we kind of understand that, that God has given us this certain kind of capacity to hold eternity within our own heart, but it's not necessarily something that we can fathom, I think it invites us to move away from thinking that confidence and faith is all about getting all the facts right, that we're going to get to heaven eventually, and St. Peter's going to have a list of all of the st you know, statement of beliefs, and you have to check them off, and can you explain the Trinity, and, and what do you believe about infant baptism, and so on and so forth. It moves us away from that. It says, no, 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 eternity is in your heart right now. And it's not something that you can fathom. It's not something you can contain. It's not something that you can describe. But it is something that you can explore. And that's where the wisdom lies. And then it changes our understanding of where we place our confidence and what it looks like to engage God um, and, and how we discover who we're really created to be. And so I want to talk about two big motivators for growth and then two big impediments to growth. Um, the first motivators for growth are either inspiration or discomfort, inspiration or discomfort. Another way of writing this, uh, my, my friend Chris, who's a pastor in Atona, says comfort and challenge, which I think are really good ways to think about it. And comfort or inspiration is that invitation to growth that comes by saying, yes, you can do it, keep going. And there's something that, um, it, you know, the word inspire literally means puts the spirit within us. And we feel that kind of affirmation that helps us to grow. And I think that's so powerful. And, and many of us experience that, and many of us, that's what we really thrive on. Um, but I believe that we also grow as much from discomfort as we do from comfort. We grow as much from challenge as we do from affirmation. Um, there's this rabbi, uh, he's currently alive, his name's uh, Abraham Tversky, Tversky, and he uses this analogy of, uh, of a lobster. I don't know if you guys know much about lobsters. I'm still learning about them. They're fascinating little bugs, water bugs. Um, but, you know, a lobster has this hard shell that he lives inside of. And um, every year or so, this lobster, in order to grow, he has to molt or shed that hard shell. So what he does is he goes down to, you know, the bottom of the ocean or the river or wherever he's at, and he kind of hides in between these rocks, and he pushes out of this shell. Um, and uh, the, the actual lobster is a very gooey, sticky little creature. Um, and so he puffs up and he breaks out of the shell. Sometimes he'll eat that shell to get all of the, uh, the calcium. But then he enters into this period of hiding where he's this very tender, gooey creature. And it's the elements around him, the water and the chemicals in the water, that actually begin to harden the new shell around him as the calcium builds up over this gooey creature. And it's a, what we understand is as far as a lobster can feel pain, it's a very painful process for him. He's very vulnerable, okay? He's very uh, prone to attack, and so he kind of hides away for this season. But it's actually the discomfort that he experiences of being exposed that prompts him to grow and to build a new shell. And the lobster does this about 25 times in their life. They'll go and they'll hide, they'll molt, they'll become bigger, and then the new shell hardens. And it's necessary for them to grow. They need that feeling of discomfort uh, and, and vulnerability in order to harden the new shell. And I think a lot of times that's the way that we grow as well. We enter into these seasons of, of discomfort. 
we enter these seasons of questioning or doubting where maybe the old ways of believing or the old things that we were told are, are true don't really seem to fit the bill. And so we need to shed like an old skin those old ways of believing and seeing and doing and our opinions about God and enter into a season of vulnerability and maybe a little bit of discomfort as we begin to ask some questions that maybe we haven't asked in a long time. But we believe that when we're in that space, that discomfort actually prompts us towards growth. And so what, those are kind of the two big motivators for growth, inspiration um, and discomfort. But what are some of the bigger impediments to growth? What keeps us from growing? I think the first is prompted by a fear of change. And this is false certitude or false certainty. And what this means is I need to make sense of the world in order to be able to control my environment. And so a lot of times, the, the biggest impediment to growth is that we believe something about ourselves, about God, about the world, and we hold onto it so tightly, we white-knuckle this belief or this way of doing things in order to try to control the world around us and to prevent it from moving, to prevent it from growing. And so we root ourselves in a moment or in a relationship or in an idea or in our plans or, or the knowledge that we have, but oftentimes that prevents us from growing. Have you ever felt that? Well, there's this old idea that you have You've held on to it for a long time. But then you begin to recognize that it's, it's actually holding you back. It's almost like you, you planted a stake in this moment when you were like 18. And it's, you've been stretching like a rubber band for too long as life continues to happen and time continues to change. But you want it to go back to the way it was. Think about our modern political climate when people talk about we need to go back to the glory days. Back to the good old days, back when America was great and everything was wonderful. If we could just go back there. I think a lot of times we live in that same kind of mentality today with our personal lives. If I could just go back to the way things were. But what that does is it sets us up to automatically be an enemy of change. And so the first kind of impediment to our growth is this false certainty that roots us in the past. But the second one, I think, is what I just talked about earlier, is skepticism, uh, which is a, I think is oftentimes from a fear of disappointment, where the way that we used to believe or the way that we used to do things doesn't fit the bill anymore, and it hurt us or it wounded us. And so we promise ourselves, I'm never going to put myself in a, in a situation where I'm going to be hurt ever again. And so we kind of reject any kind of new ideas or new ways of being and doing because we're so afraid of disappointment. Uh, elsewhere in Ecclesiastes, the writer says this, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. And so when we try to control the things in our lives that we cannot control while neglecting our inner life, um, it actually prevents us from growing whether it's that false certain certitude where I need to believe something in order to prevent the change from happening in life because I'm afraid of that, or where I need to develop some way of rejecting any kind of beliefs that are offered to me in order to kind of slide through life unaffected. We hold on to these things so tightly that fool folds their hands and ruins themselves. I love that image that the writer gives us where we just say, I'm not going to participate. I'm not going to do life. I'm just going to hold tightly to what I already have I'm not going to let the outside world affect me. I'm just going to fold my hands. But it brings us to ruin because life continues to happen. You know, life continues to move us from moment to moment and season to season, and we have to participate in that. But better one handful with tranquility, an open hand to see, well, God, what are you going to do? God, what's going to happen? And so those two ways, those two impediments to growth come in that folded hand where we call ourselves fools. And so now I want to kind of envision two ways of looking at the journey of spiritual growth itself. How is it that God is inviting us to move through time, whether it's in our personal lives or our communal lives? And so what we're going to be talking about are these two vocations that we find all through the Old Testament. Even going back uh, to Cain and Abel, Cain and Abel kind of demonstrate these two ways of being in the world. Does anybody know what was Cain's job? Did anybody go to Bible school? 
Do you have the pencils to prove it? Cain killed Abel. What did Cain, what? Yes, right. You got it, okay? Someone get him a gold sticker. Well done. So Cain and Abel are these two foundational ways of seeing that one is a shepherd and one is a farmer. And those are the kind of ways that we see throughout scripture. Um, the writers use these two images to talk about how we live life. So think about um, farming. We find um, that kind of nomadic, or not farming, um, shepherding. We find that nomadic image of moving from one place to the next, the uncharted territories. I've talked about before with Abraham. We find this really powerful image in the beginning of Abraham's story when he's Abram, and God comes to him and says, go to the land I'll show you. And that kind of uh, invitation is unprecedented, to go somewhere, and you don't know where it is, to move to the next place. And this is how shepherding often works. The shepherd takes their flock, and they, they kind of follow the flock, they kind of lead the flock, but they go from one pasture to the next. And so um, that's the first way that I want to look at growth from one to the next. And this is linear growth, moving from A to B to C, from one to two to three. And we find this time and again in the scriptures. And so if we're gonna kind of tie it in with, uh, with the wisdom tradition, what, how do we see this image of shepherding with wisdom? Wisdom responds to the invitation to uncharted territory. Wisdom responds to the invitation to uncharted territory. So Solomon, being the son of a shepherd, perhaps understood this really well. And in the beginning of the Proverbs, he says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. That fear is the beginning of knowledge. There's something that wakes us up to the, to the belief that we need to start moving. We need to go somewhere, that we need to start pressing into God. And again, we find that image of fools, that they want to freeze everything in the moment. They despise wisdom and instruction because it's prompting us to change. It's inviting us to start seeing in new ways or pressing deeper into God. And fools seek to preserve their lives because they're afraid of the wrong things. We were, uh, my parents who are here and they're in the middle, everyone give them a round of applause. They did it, they made it, they made me. Thank you, thank you for that. Um, the past few days we went down to the Everglades and we were talking to one of these like amazing southern Florida guys, you know, where I don't know if there are buttons from his shirt from here to here, you know, it's just perpetually open. And he said, he's as red as the lobsters that he pulls out of the sea. Uh, but he was, he was talking to us about gators. He had this little gator in his hand and he said, you know, gators are so efficient that they could eat one meal a day or one meal in a year. They could eat one big fish or a deer or whatever and that could be enough to preserve them for the rest of the year. They have such low metabolisms that they can survive on one meal for a whole year. Usually they eat about once every week to 10 days. Um, and that really struck me, that kind of preservation of energy. And I think a lot of times, that's the way that we live our spiritual lives, is we get one meal out of the year and then we do everything we can. We shut down our, our spiritual metabolism in order to preserve that. And we hold on to this, maybe it's a word that the Lord gave us, or a revelation, or a powerful moment of worship, or whatever it is. And we just try to preserve that, and stay in that moment, and stretch that moment as long as we can to keep us alive. That's so good. See, that God speaks to us through nature, right? We've talked about this before, like the way that God reveals himself to us. And he's given us all these images for that. But that's not what we're called to. We're called to move into uncharted territory. We're called to go from one place to the next place. We're called to go to the land that God will show you. And so I want to show you um, a scripture that I think demonstrates this movement from one place to the next, this kind of nomadic uh, mentality really beautifully. And this is Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Now, as you read this, I want you to pay attention to the tenses that Paul writes in. Are we speaking about something that has happened in the past, something that's happening in the future, uh, something that's happening in the present? Because that's a lot of the place where we're going to find the language of spiritual growth. And so keep that kind of nomadic shepherding image in your mind for this. So Paul writes this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, okay? So in your mind, write the, the thing on the board have been justified in the past. Okay, we have been justified. We're not being justified right now. It's not someday we will be justified. We have been justified by faith, which means 
Because of what Jesus has done, you are now a member of God's family. You can't earn that. You can't uh, ascend into it. It's already happened. You might be a well-behaved son and daughter. You might be an absolute nightmare, and you're the one that always shows up late for dinner. But you're in God's family. You're a covenant member in God's family. So we have been justified through faith. Now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And this is one of those verses where automatically, if you've been in church for a long time and you hear the phrases, you begin to zone out and you're like, we now have grace through faith in the... (laughs) Sometimes that helps not to read things in the NIV if that's the way you grew up. Okay, but so we have, what do we have? We have peace. We have togetherness with God because of what Jesus has done. That Jesus has given us access by faith. So this is kind of that we who with unveiled faces, the veil has been removed, the divider between us and God has been removed, and now we have access into grace. And what is grace? Grace is the hand of God placed upon you to empower you to grow, to become more than what you are, to become fully human in the way that he always designed for you to be. So we have this access. And now we boast in the hope of the glory of God. That's another one where we're like, oh my gosh. Okay, hope. What is hope? Hope is confidence in future events, right? We know that from scripture. In the glory of God, the manifest presence. So what does it mean? We have confidence that eventually God's going to show up, okay? He's here now, (laughs) I know. He's here now, but we also have confidence in the glory of God, that, that God is going to show up. How does he do that? Right now, he does that through his people. So as you and I are transformed to look like Jesus, we become the glory of God. So we have hope and confidence that the more we participate in this relationship with God, the more we look like Jesus, the more we reflect that one to another. And so we have confidence, we have hope in the glory of God. Now this is the part that I really want you to think about in that from one to the next nomadic mentality. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, okay? What does that mean? Suffering produces the image of God, okay? How do we grow? Through inspiration, but also through discomfort. So when you suffer, it makes the evidence of God more apparent in your life and and to the people around you. So we glory in our sufferings. We don't reject them. We don't hide from them. We don't say, oh my goodness, like I'm not supposed to feel pain or suffer. God would never want that for me and he can't do anything with that. No, 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 we glory in our suffering. Why? Because we know, okay, suffering, A, produces perseverance, B, perseverance, character. And what kind of character? This isn't just moral character. You don't just become a better person. It is literally the character of Jesus, okay? So when we suffer and we stick through it and we persevere, even if it's discomforting, we begin to inhabit the character of Jesus. We look more and more like him. And this character produces hope. Do you realize that we don't start with hope, okay? You need to really hear me in this. In your spiritual growth, as you become more and more like Jesus, you're not necessarily going to begin with hope, confidence of future events. Because it's not hope that carries us through the places of doubt and the places of pain and discomfort. It's faith. To say, God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what's going on around me. I don't know what's going on within me. I don't see the light at the other end of the tunnel. But I'm going to trust in you today to carry me through this process. Because whatever I look like on the other side, however you reveal yourself to me on the other side, I know it's going to be good because I know that you are good. And so suffering leads us to perseverance, which leads to character, and character leads us to hope because we begin to look back and say, oh my goodness, look what God has done this whole time through my life. So now I have confidence to look at the future and say, okay, I know what he's going to do in the future. And I begin to detach my confidence from small ways of believing or small ways of doing faith. And I begin to become more open-handed and trust whatever God's doing. One time I had a student in the ministry school and we worked uh, through some things that the Lord was really uncovering in her and she entered into this time of confession and repentance and and there were tears and prayer and she said, is it always going to hurt this much? And I said, kind of. Sometimes it hurts so much. 
to grow. Sometimes it feels really embarrassing to be found out by God. But the more that we choose to participate in that process, the less that we hide from pain and discomfort, that we allow it to come and we persevere, the more we have evidence that God is good and that his purposes for us are very, very good. Paul goes on, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And so the more that we persevere through suffering, through times of change, the more we become open-handed with God and say, I don't know what you're doing, I don't know what's happening, but I'm going to trust in you in this moment. The more we let go of our aversion to pain and discomfort and trust him, the more God's love pours out of our hearts because we look more like Jesus because of it. As I said last week, you want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what it looks like to be human? Look at Jesus. You want to know what it looks like to suffer well through life? Look at Jesus. You want to know what it looks like to have joy in the midst of great trial? Look at Jesus. He is our template for what it means to be fully human in God's way. So, that, so from one to the next, moving from season to season in a, in a linear way, where we're moving into places that we don't know what it looks like, but we trust in God's goodness. Just take a moment. What was the last new territory that God invited you into? What was the last thing that you had no context for? That you didn't have any language for it? You didn't have uh, any previous experiences that really helped you in it? And you had to rely on faith because it was a completely new place. You know, a lot of times at our church, we talk about the apostolic heart. And that, that's the, the heart of the apostle. That's what the, that word literally means, is to go into the new territory. To go into the, the new place, the unforeseen place. And to establish a space for everyone else to be able to come and to set up camp. And some of us are called to be apostles, but all of us are invited to that apostolic heart. To say, God, where's the new place that you're taking me? What's the uncharted territory? What's the, the new way of being in the world that I haven't experienced yet? And so that nomadic spirit from one to the next. And so the second image that we get from Scripture is the rooted farmer. And so if the nomadic shepherd is this idea of moving through time, one, two, three, uh, forward movement, linear growth, then we can understand the farmer is there and back again, which of course is also the subtitle to The Hobbit. Had to put that in there. But I'm gonna use that later on in an image and you guys are gonna have your minds blown. So the farmer, there and back again. So instead of talking about linear growth, let's talk about cyclical growth, okay? Um, we see this idea of the farmer over and over again in scripture in Ecclesiastes, you know, everybody uh, probably knows uh, those lines that are made famous by the birds and, the, and um, you know, for everything there is a season, right? A uh, time to gather up stones and to put them down, a time to laugh, a time to weep. Um, a lot of the parables that Jesus speaks use this kind of farming imagery. And I love that idea um, of, of participating in change that looks like a cycle. It's like you're rooted in a place, but you let time kind of swirl around you. I've talked about several times how much I've enjoyed over the past decade kind of stumbling my way through gardening uh, in, my own, uh, in my own house. And, and one of the things that I love about it is there's so much for me to participate in with, with gardening, with tilling the soil and preparing it and then planting the seeds and then uh, kind of cultivating uh, the seeds and making sure they're watered and they get enough sun and, and all of that. But there's some point within the gardening process where I have to give up control and just let things happen. I can't rush the process as much as I might want to. I can't make the seasons hurry up. I can't make it rain. I can't make it the, sun, the sun shine every day. I have to give myself over to those cycles of the seasons. But what I can do as a little junior baby farmer is I can give myself over to the cycle. That there's certain times in the year that I know that I can plant these kinds of plants. And I might want to plant them at some other time of the year. I want eggplant every day of the year, but I can't have it. You know? That's the world we live in. And I can... <laughs> There's two kinds of people in the world, those who like eggplant and those who don't. But 
I can, I can, I can fuss and, and steam over the fact that I can't grow eggplant whenever I want. And I can try to control my world and make that a reality. Or I can give myself over to the seasons. And I can give myself over to the cycles of life and learn to work with the world the way in which God has created it. And know that I'm always going to keep coming back to that moment. I know every spring I can plant these kinds of plants. But the beauty in that kind of cyclical growth understanding seasons is that even though it's every year it becomes spring, it's always going to be the same, and it's also simultaneously always going to be different because I have a whole new year of experience. I'm entering it into my 33rd fall on this planet. And I know what to expect in fall. I know what fall means, although in Florida it doesn't mean very much. But I know what to expect yet it's also going to be completely different. And I think this is the beauty of, the beauty of understanding uh, the cyclical invitation to growth. And so in the wisdom tradition, what does that mean? Wisdom continuously crosses over to the other side to seek understanding. So we ask, where is wisdom? Wisdom is on the other side of wherever you're at right now. So there's this invitation to growth. So I've been learning a lot about my personality type over the past uh, several months, and I know that one of the major motivators in my life is reconciliation and harmony. That's the way that I see the world, and it's the way that I choose to be in the world. Maybe I don't, I don't even choose that. It's just the way that God has gifted me to be in the world. And so I very easily see things uh, in spectrums, or A or B, and I see, well, these people are over here, and this idea, and these people are over here, and this idea. And my natural tendency is always to say, how do these two things meet? Where's the common ground between these two ways of seeing the world that we can begin to move forward together? And I think that that speaks to this idea that I'm sharing with wisdom is always about crossing over to the other side to seek un understanding. So what do I mean? I want to give you another parable. There's this young man. He graduates from Harvard. He has a degree in Socratic philosophy and continental philosophy and all these things. And he comes to this old rabbi one day. He says, Rabbi, here's all of my credentials. Um, I really want to, to learn the Talmud. I want to come under your, uh, your way of, of, of learning and, and understand these things. And the rabbi says, okay, well, uh, do you speak Hebrew? No, I don't. Okay, do, how about Aramaic? No, not really. How much have you really put into this? I, I, you know, I, I haven't really done Talmud since I was a little kid, but I'm a fast learner, and I really want to learn this, and I want to use what I've learned in reason and logic to really make this happen. He says, okay. I'll, I'll give you a question. If you can answer this question correctly, then I'll take you on as a student. He says, two men go down a chimney. One man ends up washing his face after they come through. Which man washes his face? And so the student thinks about it for a second. He says, okay, two men come down a chimney. One of them washes his face. He says, so it must have been the, the, the man with the soot on his face. Uh, you know, he must have gone, he went down first. He got the soot on his face. He goes and washes his face. And the rabbi says, no, 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 it's the guy without the soot on his face because he looks at his friend's face, sees the soot, and says, okay, I have to go and wash my face. Go away. And he says, no, 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 please, just give me another chance. Ask me another question. He says, okay, I'm going to ask you a, two, a different question. Two men go down a chimney. One of them has soot on his face. Which one washes his face? And he says, okay, so it's not the one with soot. So it's the one without the soot on his face because he looks at his friend's face and he sees that his friend has soot on his face. So he thinks he might, and he goes and washes it. And the rabbi says, no, are you, are you crazy? No, it's the guy with the soot on his face because he feels it stinging his eyes, and he, he's tasting it in his mouth, and so he goes and washes his face. Now, go away. Quit bothering me. He says, wait, no, rabbi, please, give me one more chance. Give me one op more opportunity to figure this out. He says, okay, I'm going to ask you a different question now. Two men go down a chimney. One of them washes his face. Which one is it? And he goes, okay. Uh, it's my first answer, but for different reasons. And, he's, and the rabbi says, no, are you crazy? They both washed their faces. They just came through a chimney. And I love this image because it, it removes us from our Western understanding of reason and logic. A plus B equals C. Here's the answer. And the, the beauty of that Jewish way of seeing the world is that whatever the answer is, you're probably wrong. But there's always that invitation. It's in the wrestling. It's in the participation that you really 
come alive and you begin to think in new ways. And that's very much what we're talking about with this idea of moving through cycles that wisdom invites us to whatever the other side is of where we're confident. That's where wisdom invites us because it shakes us up from finding confidence in our answers or in our philosophies and it reorients us to pursuing God, of being in relationship with God. So we, uh, we grow as human beings when we affirm the things of faith that are natural to us while also seeking out what's unnatural. And I think the Bible is full of these either-or false dualities that were presented. I want to give you just one example of one that I really love in James chapter 2, beginning in the 14th verse. James says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, okay? So this is the kind of either or that we're working on. And this, is a, this has been a big conversation throughout history, especially within the Protestant church. Are we justified by faith or are we justified by works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So then he's going to address the people on the other side of the argument. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Again, why does he call them a fool? Because they're trying to hide in their little camp, their tribe. Well, I'm in the faith camp, and you're in the works camp, and that's fine. I know how the world works. I don't need to grow any. So he says, you foolish person, the faith apart from works is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, and all of the Calvinists among us tremble in our boots. <laughs> and I love that. We go, is it faith or is it works? And James and Paul and Jesus, they say, well, it depends. What do you find natural? Where, where's the place that you're, maybe you're in a season where it's all about faith and it's building up your faith and you're kind of learning how to trust God. But the, the other side for you is works to say, God is inviting you to say, okay, you believe, great. Now do something about it. Go out, put hands and feet to your faith. And so the invitation, the wisdom invitation is to step over to the other side and begin to explore the world of the works that God has in store for us. But maybe you're one of those people that your participation in the Christian life is so oriented around works that you slowly begin to believe it's what you do that earns your place in God's family. And so wisdom for you is to be invitation to the other side to say, yes, but let's not forget about faith. That Abraham believed God. Abraham trusted God was going to do what God said he was going to do. And that was also enough. Another example that I really love is humility and authority. We say, are we supposed to be humble or are we supposed to have authority? The answer is, well, yes. But sometimes when we live so much in the humility camp, we become powerless. And we see the, thing, the world as it is, and we, we know that there's some sort of invitation to do something about it, and we say, oh, I couldn't possibly. I couldn't do that. I'm going to be humble. I'm going to be so humble. I'm the humblest, humblest person there ever was. And we actually rob ourselves of the power that we have. But sometimes we're so geared in the authority camp that we believe, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which isn't actually what that verse is about. And we believe we have this authority and power and we're kind of like superheroes when God gives us the Holy Spirit and we go out there with our cape on and we save the world and we're really cocky. And before long we believe that it's our strength and our awesomeness that makes us who we are. And we lose that place of humility to say, I can do nothing apart from God. And so maybe right now you're in one of those camps. Maybe you're in a humility camp. And you're learning a lot about humility, and that's beautiful. And God's saying, but don't forget about the authority that I've given you. There's a way to be humble and powerful at the same time. Okay? Hear me in this. Don't, don't fall into that false humility that's powerless, but also don't fall into that false humility that's, um, that's self-serving and self-aggrandizing. 
Another one, I love it, especially in this church. Oh, my goodness. Not only, so that's a belief idea, humility and authority. How about spontaneity or structure in worship, right? Where, where do you naturally find yourself, okay? So growing up Anglican, I'm a structure guy. I am a structure guy. I, I think I told you before, the first sermon uh, that I ever heard when I moved up to Nashville and I started going to Vineyard Church, my pastor Josh gets up there, and he's like this good old boy from Virginia. He says, I'm going to be honest with y'all. I don't even know what I'm going to talk about, so I'm just going to talk. The Holy Spirit gives me something. And I was like, no, we do not do that. We have a lectionary. We, we have cycles. You can pick any Sunday in history, and I can look it up in a book and tell you exactly the biblical readings that are going to be for that Sunday. And I hated it. It was so uncomfortable for me to be in this kind of spirit-led, charismatic church. Um, but I remember just a couple weeks into being there in prayer, and I really felt like the Lord said, Ryan, you have this, you know, the structure has given you this confidence in who I am and how I operate theologically, but I want you to experience me in this whole new way. And as awful as some of the theology was in my church, like, uh, you know, I got this new experience of the real and the living God, and I saw the power and the beauty of being spontaneous, of being willing to be open-handed with the plan, the way things work. And so I think a lot of times in our practices, we find that personally, what kind of Christian are you? Do you prefer structure and rhythm and you know what to expect? Or are you somebody that you want everything to be spontaneous and as soon as you have a plan, you know that God's going to throw it out the window and so you make plans just with the anticipation of them being thrown out and you kind of wander aimlessly through life. I think wisdom invites us to see other ways of worshiping, other ways of practicing our faith that make us more well-rounded because it's not about being spontaneous. It's not about being structured. It's about being faithful to God. And whatever way helps us to grow in our understanding of him is blessed. And so we play these back and forth games in this cyclical growth. Is it A or is it B? And we walk back and forth between those two ideas to realize that they're all really connected. Is it faith or is it works? Ultimately, yes. And so you explore faith, you explore works, and you realize it's all kind of the same thing. And so what is something that the Lord might be inviting you to, to revisit with new eyes? A place that you've already been, but because of the experiences that you've had, it's going to take on a whole new meaning. We come back to an idea like grace, or humility, or authority, or whatever it might be, and we see it with new eyes. It's like coming home. This is like what happens with Bilbo Baggins. You're welcome. There's your hobbit. He, he goes away on this big adventure, and he comes right back home, and everything's the same, but everything has changed because he's changed on the inside. Where are the places that maybe God's inviting you to come back to something, but it's going to be completely new? I think all of this idea of growth of giving ourselves over to time, of letting God lead us from moment to moment or season to season can be summed up in this phrase that we run into so often in Scripture. And it came to pass. And it came to pass. That is one of the most terrifying lines in Scripture, one of the most comforting, depending on how you hold your spiritual growth. But time will keep moving, whether you believe that or not. Whether you like that or not, time is going to keep moving. And you can make time and seasons your friend, and you can submit to it and allow God to lead you into some new territory, allow God to bring you back to some old territory, but to bring new life into it. Or you can resist change. You can resist time. You can try to freeze your spiritual growth in a moment but you'll miss out on your own life. And before long, that, that understanding you had of what God is like or who you're called to be becomes stale and stagnant. And eventually it dies and it only becomes a memory. And so I want to invite us this morning to trust in God's processes, that God's processes in our lives are good, regardless of how they feel in the moment. We're to be sensitive to those things, but they don't dictate what's happening. But to be faithful to God's process in whatever, whatever season we are in our spiritual growth and to trust that it's good because God is good. 
and to trust that the outcome will be good because God's is good. I'm not the same person that I was 10 years ago. I don't believe the same things necessarily. I don't believe those things in the same way. And I hope in another 10 years, all of that has changed more. I hope that I look different in 10 years than I do today. But I want that change and that transformation to be a result of being faithful to God, leading me from moment to moment and day to day and season to season. And that's what my hope is for you and for our community overall. So I want to invite you to stand with me, please. I'm going to pray. And we're going to worship God. And as we're worshiping, I want you to invite the Spirit to reveal to you places in your life where you have rooted your confidence uh, somewhere in the past that you haven't submitted to the fact that everything changes and there's always going to be seasons and that old belief or that old way of thinking or that old way of doing you, you feel the tension that it's bringing into your life today and I want you to invite um, invite Jesus to, to bring some healing maybe to cut some of those ties to the old ways of believing and doing and, to inv and, and for Jesus to bring everything that you are into the present moment, to be open-handed with him today, to say, God, wherever you lead me, I want to be faithful to you. So let's pray and worship. So Heavenly Father, um, I thank you for time. Lord, I thank you for change. I thank you that wherever you meet us, you don't leave us there. Lord, we repent for any place in our lives where we've been afraid of change, where we've been afraid of disappointment because of things didn't work out in the past, and it's prevented us from growing in the present. It's robbed us of hope for the future. And Heavenly Father, as we step into this time of worshiping you, the God who's with us now in this present moment, inviting us to walk through life with you, I pray that your spirit would begin to work within us, transforming us more into the image of Christ, that we walk out of here changed, transformed, looking more like you, because that's why we're here, Father. So bless this time of worship, Lord, as we lift up your holy name. We pray all these things in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.